I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And I've got a question for you. If I tasked you with summing up the worldview of about 50 million people, do you think you'd be able to do it? Sounds a little ridiculous, right? I imagine you'd be hard-pressed to sum up all the opinions of your family members into something coherent, and they're actually related to one another. So where did I pull that 50 million figure from? That's just about how many people there are in the quote, black community here in the United States. And it's not uncommon for people to speak about this community as if they had a single unified voice. But that sort of language and thinking leaves a lot of varied perspectives by the wayside. Our guest this week shares her story of embracing the diverse, complex, and often contradictory opinions that can exist within any community. Brittany Talissa King is a freelance writer and journalist. She recently graduated from New York University, receiving her master's in journalism, cultural reporting, and criticism. She explores American racial issues through essays and her podcast, Hashtag American Shade with Brittany King, on YouTube. She studied under Ta-Nehisi Coates, which broadened her scope on the art of language. She's published at The Republic, The Daily Beast, Washington Square News, Forward Magazine, Fractil Magazine, Tablet Magazine, and is a featured writer on Medium. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, as I've prepared for our conversation and made my way through your body of work, one thing I've really enjoyed is watching you grapple pretty much in real time with your own feelings about issues of race and identity. Honestly, it's refreshing and something I think we should all strive for. But before we dive into the meat of our conversation, when did you study under Coates and what was he like as a mentor and professor? And what were some of your key takeaways or revelations from your time with him? So I studied with Coates when I was at New York University in 2019 during the spring semester. Actually, to get into the course, you had to apply with a thousand word essay. A lot of people wanted to get in. He was only selecting 10 people. I did not think I was going to get in, but of course I applied because he's one of my favorite authors and I really look up to him as a writer. I applied, I got in, I came an hour early to the first class session, sat right next to him, was literally shaking under the table because I could not believe I was right next to him. But during those weeks with him, he really humanized the process with journalism and humanize the process of writing. He actually brought in the manuscript to his latest book, The Water Dancer, and he let us all just touch it before it went to print. He brought in some edits of his book, Between the World and Me, and he just made the process after graduating seem more tangible to make this into a career because we were thinking if Tanahasi Coates is still saying, you know what, I'm not perfect. I'm showing you I'm not perfect, but if you love this, you can be successful. That's what really gave me more drive to go after this. I can only imagine how helpful that was being able to see the iterations that his manuscript uh, Between the World and Me went through. Because I think that one of the hardest things of being a writer, and I certainly went through a similar experience in my screenwriting classes at film school, is getting past the idea that your first draft has to be perfect and grappling with the fact that, you know, the first revision or the first draft is just one of many and giving yourself space 
to improve as you continue to write. I think having someone like Coates being that honest about his own process had to have been incredibly helpful for you as a young writer. It was very helpful. One thing about the writing process that he really showed us was take time and that your process is your process and that being a quick writer does not mean you're a great writer. Being a slow writer doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. He says, everyone has their own knack for this profession and that there's no wrong way. As long as you can meet meet the deadline, that's all that matters. And as long as you're pumping out great work, that's all that matters. So with Between the World and Me, I think he actually said it took, I believe he said almost a decade because he said he wrote the book and had to literally scrap everything but a couple of paragraphs because the editor said it just wasn't working. And when he said that, we were all taken aback because that was one of all of our favorite books. And the fact that something like this took a decade, it wasn't something that actually was dismaying in any way. It actually really like inspired me because it was, he could have said after, you know, the third edit of this book, I'm not doing anymore. But he was like, no, this is something that needs to be brought into fruition. And this is something that the world needs. And this is something I need to get out of me. And just really thankful for that experience. Yeah, while reading Between the World and Me, the year it came out, which is, gosh, I can't even remember. It seems like a lifetime ago. But it definitely felt like one of those books where every sentence felt specifically crafted for the mission of whatever that sentence was. And what you said reminds me of, there's this book called Adventures in the Screen Trade, which is by the screenwriter William Goldman, who wrote screenplays like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Running Man, and a few other famous award-winning screenplays. And Goldman originally started out as a novelist, a rather unsuccessful one before pivoting into screenwriting. But he recalls this moment where he comes across one of his favorite novelists. And I think it was at a laundromat or something kind of unsuspecting in New York City. And he sees the novelist and Goldman's in his 20s at the time. And he goes up to the novelist and he is just so enamored. You know, he's meeting one of his heroes, one of one of these novelists that he'd admired since he was a kid. And he says, you make it look so easy. When you write, everything must be so easy for you. And the look on the novelist's face was one of just like a combination of sadness and pain upon hearing those words. And reflecting back on it, Goldman realizes that the writing only looks easy when you're seeing the finished product. But in fact, to get the words to that point is just like an excruciating battle of revision after revision. Yes. And that it's funny that you talk about the sentence structure that he has with Tanahasi Coates. That is something he says he had to work on. And that is something that actually, I mean, it's really cliche to say, oh, it changed my life. But it really did because he said each sentence is nothing to take for granted in an essay or a book. He said, each sentence is like layering a brick and to form a house. You don't just layer wood or like hay. Like you have to make it like sturdy. You have to make the foundation good. And each sentence is that. And he says, if it takes a day for you to get a great sentence, then it will take you a day. If it just flows out of you, it flows out. But make sure each sentence makes sense, it's clear, and it matters. 
don't just put in froth. Like he's like, this isn't the 11th grade. This isn't you just trying to make a, a thousand word essay because that's the limit. He's like, when you're a writer, people see through that. And they will literally see through a sentence they've seen time and time again. He's like, make an original. Don't have any assumed language. Try not to have cliches. Make it fresh. And that is why people really love how he uses language. And that's why I said he really changed my scope on the art of language because he allowed me to see that even though literally hundreds of thousands, it feels like, of words have poured out of me. I've always felt like I don't have any more left. Like I don't have any more words left with original content, but hearing those words and being in that class, I know I always have something. It might take a little longer, but there's always some way that you can reframe something to be fresh and new and to still being within your voice. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was reading his book and actually really any of any of his work that I've read. I, I was reading his essays, I think, since I guess what, 2013, 2014. And the mark of a good writer is when the sentences are so original and so lean. Each sentence has been put under so much pressure that each sentence is like a diamond, you know, like just like all the coal's been crushed down <laughs> into this really kind of powerful, pure thing. And that kind of writing you can't really skip over it. You can't just kind of read it like you're at a buffet line and you're just shoveling food onto your plate. I would find myself repeatedly having to go back and read his paragraphs over mm -hmm. because each sentence had so much packed into it that my mind had to really wrestle with each word. Yeah, that was especially in his essay with over Trump, the first white president. Things that stuck out to me in the middle of the essay he doesn't say he's a historian, but he does a lot of research with history, obviously. And I was looking at a couple of paragraphs and I'm like, any other writer would have made this three pages, but he made it three pages stick within three paragraphs and told so much history. And not only that, but told it in a way that was just so easy to understand. And that was something that he wanted us all to hear. He said, don't ever finger wag to the reader. Don't make them feel like they can't come along without your help along the way. Like, don't think that they're dumb, basically. He says, hold out your hand to them, guide them along, assume that they understand, but just make sure like that if there's certain things that you need to include, make sure it's just not condescending. He's like, there's a lot of writers out there that feel like to be elite or highbrow, you need to almost purposely go over the the reader's head. And that's one thing that people love about him and that I love is he does sound very intelligent, but he's not trying to be like, I am this public intellectual. He just is. And he's really wants the reader to understand what he's saying. And I really appreciate that. And I think that segues perfectly into the kind of thrust of our conversation, because after all, I'm having a conversation with King, not with Coates. So <laughs> I want to make sure this isn't yeah. this isn't two people fawning over how how great a writer Coates is, because I think you're a really fantastic writer in your own right. And your essay for Tablet Magazine, which is entitled Free Black Thought, The Case for Heterodoxy in Views on Race, is really wonderful, in my opinion. And in what I would say is the crux of the piece, 
It's June 19th, Juneteenth, 2019, and you're watching Coates testify in favor of Bill H.R. 40, which would set up a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for black Americans. And Coates is testifying opposite writer and philosopher Coleman Hughes, who's arguing against the bill. And in your essay, you wrote, quote, there's a difference between millions of minds attached to a thought versus millions of thoughts critically agreeing with an idea. This isn't to say that Coates' testimony wasn't valuable and true because it also was popular. It's to say his testimony shouldn't be considered impeccable or universally representative based solely on its popularity. In the same vein, Hughes' testimony should not be disregarded because his position was anomalous. I remember watching the congressional hearing at New York University where ta Coates teaches and where he formerly taught me. I also remember hurling racial epithets at Hughes, calling him a coon as I applauded Coates' pro-argument. I don't regret cheering for my former professor, but I do regret opposing Hughes without considering his argument. After re-watching the debate about 20 times, I still see Coates as eloquently accurate, but I also view Hughes as controversially truthful. Even more importantly, I realized that if I disagreed with either, my analysis should critique their argument, not denigrate their identity." End quote. So this essay came out in September of this year, only a little over a year after Coates and Hughes' testimony. What has your journey been over the last year that took you from hurling racial epithets at Hughes to arriving at your current, more expansive definition of, quote, black thought? There's been a lot of breakthroughs. And yes, I still remember that moment when I hurried to watch that congressional hearing because, you know, my former professor was on there. and. It's funny, I went to watch and listen to Coates, but I was not listening at all to Coleman. The fact that he was on the opposite side of Coates was enough for me. And like I said, yes, I was throwing racial epithets at him, calling him a coon, even anti-Black, because he wasn't for reparations. But after graduating with journalism, a master's in journalism, and specifically my program was cultural reporting and criticism, During that time, the last semester, I was really reconsidering how I was thinking about things. And I was like, do I think this thing, this idea, or is this my identity? Is this my emotions agreeing with an idea because I feel like I have to because I have this tie because I'm black or I'm a woman or I'm a millennial or or whatever. So I started to really interrogate myself. And one thing that actually helped me, which I did not think this thing would help me because this was one of the hardest things I I went through in grad school and probably my life, to be honest. But I wrote an essay, a polemic against Thomas Chatterson Williams. And in this polemic, I basically call him anti-Black in more ways than one because of how he went after Coates, because of how he wants to unravel race and not be considered black and white. He's a black and white man, and he feels like race is arbitrary and that he has decided that he is not a black man or a white man. And instead of really hearing him on why, I I read essays, I read some of his book, and I made a huge assumption about him, and I attacked his identity, and I really wasn't attacking his argument And my director, who I had a great rapport with, who I would even say a great friendship with, really took me 
to task like I've never, ever been. She basically told me that my polemics sucked. And she said, because you did not give him a fighting chance. You basically wrote him with his hands tied behind his back where you were just relentlessly punching him in the face. For someone to really read this and take you seriously, you need to make him as a formidable opponent as possible. Like you need to make his side strong. Do not do a straw man, like an Iron Man, which is something Jordan Peterson says, which I'll get into that later. But that was the start of me really thinking like, okay, I'm getting something wrong. Is she wrong or am I wrong? And then I was going through this journey of basically revisiting people that I figuratively threw in the trash because they said one thing that I did not like. Therefore, everything about them was wrong. So I figuratively took them out of the trash and started reading these people like revisiting Thomas Chatterson Williams, looking at Coleman Hughes, looking at Shelby Steele, Thomas Sowell, all of these people. One book that really helped was Black Skin, White Mask by Ferenc Fanon. When I read this book, this was the beginning of me realizing that I need to reconsider how I've been thinking. And then I discovered Jordan Peterson before I knew about the controversy that he was going through. And then after I stumbled on a discussion about him, because I was going down a rabbit hole on YouTube watching Jordan Peterson. And then I, I discovered the video where he was being called transphobic and a neo-Nazi and all this. And I'm like, how is he this? And everything I've been listening to is the antithesis of that. What have I missed? So I realized that he had a hearing of the C-16 bill and I listened to that whole thing. I listened to his counter arguments to the things that that he was being um, accused of and what he was being accused of just did not hold up. It logically was false. And I realized that I was that person on the other side. Like I would have been one of those people against Jordan. And that's what really opened my eyes. Like, like listening to Jordan, reading the black skin, white mask, revisiting all these people and understanding that in order to critically think, I have to detach my identity away from the process because my identity is just wholly subjective. If I look, if I have it anywhere close to me when I'm thinking, I will be distracted. And it's not an easy thing to do. It's very hard. And this started in December of 2019. During that time, it was, um, you could say identity crisis. Someone could say that. You know, there's times where I was crying a lot because I'm like, thinking what what have I been missing all these years? I formally led a Black Lives Matter chapter in Columbus in 2016, 2018. And during even the last six months of that, I was starting to think like, I think we're doing this wrong. Like I was like, I think there's something we're missing with Black Lives Matter movement. I support Black Lives Matter as something that should be normal. The organization I'm not sure about too much anymore. But the notion of Black Lives Matter, yes. But when I was doing the chapter, I just realized, I don't know if we're moving the needle. I think that we're just dealing with temporary fixes that help us emotionally 
but I don't know if we're moving the needle, like Dr. King moved the needle, like Malcolm X, like the civil rights movement, like all of these people in history, even Harriet Tubman. Like, I'm like, I don't think we're pushing anything. And it actually was going to journalism school and seeing how media really inflates racism and really can pin people against each other just based on clipping things together or clipping things out. I mean, we studied how people did it, so we don't do it. And there's a big reason why we take the oath of the code of ethics. There's a big reason why we do that. After graduating, I'm just like, this is something that I need to amplify and let people know what's really going on. Not to say racism is not a thing and not to say systematic racism is not a thing because it is. But prior to this, when I was in 2016, when I was like 27, 26, I thought racism, systematic racism was a mile high wall, like that I'm going to climb and then I'm going to like never get close, but hopefully in 400 years, someone will get over the hump. After doing journalism school, after critically thinking, after looking at all of these other black voices who I felt because they don't fit a narrative, they're not black, but realizing that there, there isn't a narrative one black narrative, there's 40 million and that every single one needs to be considered. I realized like a lot of our problems are inside of these people and what they've offered up. And everyone has a piece of the puzzle of a race problem and they all should be considered. So that's when I realized that racism is more of like a thousand foot wall. It's there, but it's not impossible. And it's been chiseled down decade after decade after decade. But the media inflates it. The media makes everything worse. Not every media outlet. I'm not going to say that. I'll say a lot of mainstream media outlets do. Sorry I went on a tangent, but hopefully I answered the question. That's totally, totally fine. Tangents are encouraged, especially really thoughtful ones like that one. Man, a lot to take in. So. First, I think that being able to admit to the journey that you went through and the fact that you were able to grapple with those ideas, even when it was really painful, is a really brave thing to admit to because a lot of people don't. I think quite a few people go on similar journeys, but I think that for whatever reason, perhaps we're not incentivized to, people are remiss to actually articulate what those journeys can feel like and what that kind of loss of identity or ego or transformation of identity can feel like. I went through something similar, at least in my my own way. In the period from about 2013 to 2016, I was really running pretty thick with some people who were studying critical race theory and their ideas about race and their ideas about me and me being white or my half of my family being Armenian and what that meant were really toxic. It took me a few years to really appreciate how toxic it was because it was kind of wrapping itself in a lot of language that felt great and a lot of language that on the surface I was really in favor of, you know, issues of justice and issues of equality. But kind of beneath the surface of that were just a lot of very toxic assumptions and I think sort of similar to to something you were articulating a second ago, a lot of, and if we're just being frank here, a lot of racist assumptions about what it means to be a blank 
right? What it means to be white, what it means to be black, the quote unquote right opinions to have if you are black or if you are Asian or if you are Latino, what it means to be a traitor to your race and all these other things. These terms, these ideas, ally, traitor, were thrown around so freewheeling in a way that wasn't even critically examined and in ways that, you know, especially early on, because I wanted to be a, you know, a quote, good, a good white, I didn't really critically engage with because oftentimes I was the only white person in the room and I'm not going to be the one who says like, hey guys, maybe, maybe what you're saying right now yeah. <laughs> is actually really limiting, <laughs> but it took me a couple years, you know, and if I'm being honest, like I, I, yeah, I kind of had sort of a mental breakdown because it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for people to tell me because I'm half Armenian on my mom's side. It, it, the fact that you're Armenian means that you understand the struggle. The fact that you're Armenian means that you're more empathetic. And what was not being said, but that I, what I was absorbing every time someone would say something like that, and it was really, uh, <laughs> I'm trying not to get emotional talking about it, but uh, a lot of therapy later, what, what they weren't saying, but they, what they were implying was, well, what about the other half of me? you keep giving me compliments about one half. Like, what are you implying through those compliments about my other half? I mean, what assumptions are you making about me <laughs> because you think I am a good one because of my DNA? It's just very, I mean, I don't want to go on another tangent. But yeah, I think I, I relate on a, on a deep level, at least in, in the ways that I can to what you're saying. But I also, I think the journey you went on and the, the journey that I've been going on and w- in the ways that I think about race and this kind of black-white dichotomy that was handed down to us by supremacists a few hundred years ago, I actually think that the secret to to moving beyond, right, to getting over that thousand foot wall kind of lies within this conversation. And I'm, I'm actually rather optimistic about how fast viral ideas and viral memes around what identity means can spread. But I do think that you're right on the money in that they would spread a lot faster if it wasn't for a media that is, I think, for financial reasons, intent on keeping us siloed. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny that you mentioned how you were feeling because, I mean, obviously it's not the same because, you know, we're different colors and races. And I say that with heavy quotes over here. I know you can't see me. But Oh, yeah. I always, whenever, whenever I say things like white or black or anything, I'm doing like the heaviest scare quotes I can. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I'm doing it. Trust me. But when I was doing Black Lives Matter, I, like Columbus is actually the hometown of Vice President Mike Pence. So it's very Republican, very conservative, very Christian. We're also very sheltered. They just assumed racism just didn't touch us because we're a pretty pleasant town. But there was a lot of covert stuff happening. And so in 2016, you know, when Alton Sterling died, when Philando Castile died, I had done Diane's prior, like in college at IU for Eric Gardner, Mike Brown. But when these things happened back to back, I was like, enough's enough. I protested. Long story short, we had this organization. I knew that I had to implement this organization to suit my community. It couldn't be something that Gary Indiana would do or South Bend or whatever. It had to be for my community. And I knew that they needed one-on-one events. They needed meetings that I needed to, to more or less words, teach them about racism, teach them about black oppression, 
Cause these, some of these people just really don't know, like really just don't know. But there was this thing that was happening a lot and I was guilty of it. So I'm like, like Oh, it was happening around me. No, this was stuff, stuff I would say as well. The whole notion of white silence is violence. The whole notion of when white, don't send yourself white people in a conversation. When we talk about race, listen to the black person or the person of color. What we say is right. What we say is true. Do not question us. Our experience matters more than your facts that you bring in or what you could ever say, because you're just never will experience this because you're the oppressor. So there's a lot of people that would be, I guess, discouraged to say stuff. And it wasn't just in Columbus, like everywhere I would go again, this was stuff I was, this was a rhetoric I was doing as well. And this is when I said in the six months of BLM, I realized there was a contradiction happening because while I was saying, and other black leaders were saying, while I was saying white silence is violence, but when white people would stay home and not come to the protest, I would say, your silence is complicit. And I'm like, okay, so white people come to the protests and it's okay for them to say black lives matter shouting. And it's okay for them when we say, say their names, say his name, say her name. It's fine. But when we go into the meetings and the events where real dialogue can happen, even as uncomfortable as it should be, because race is uncomfortable to talk about and racism is ugly. That is when we should not want white people to be silent. That's the time to really like, tell us how you feel. Tell us what you see as a white person. Tell us what you feel when you hear white privilege. Tell us why white privilege is something that you just feel like should not be assigned to you. Tell us this, this, this. We can't silence white people in this because white people, they're a race as well. (laughs) As much as we don't talk about it, American slavery happened to black people, but white people, their lineage was also involved. And if you're going to hold them up as the oppressor, but then say, be quiet, don't talk. They might have s- some sound advice or they might just have something that we can't see because we aren't in the same position as them. Maybe they're like, okay, there's this blind spot you guys don't see because I'm white. I can see it. Or there's this weak spot in the system. I can tell you guys about this or this or this, but the fact that white people feel silent. And then not only that, but we say, okay, if you want to talk about race, talk about it with each other. But then white people are like, well, we don't know how to talk about it. <laughs> like we were coming in to talk about it with people who has quote unquote experienced the issue. So why should the so-called oppressors get into a room and just talk and loathe about how they oppress black people, but not have any mechanisms or tools on how to fix it. And that is when I really was like, I, and I, like you said that you were afraid to kind of speak up and be quote unquote, the, that white person. I was honestly afraid to kind of speak up. I'm not someone that's scared of the backlash on me, but I was scared on the backlash on how that might ripple effect on other black lives matter chapters. If a leader of a black lives matter chapter says no white people should talk. Then I was afraid that people might be like, well, Brittany said I can, and this, and then that might create unnecessary tension and division. And I was just kind of like, I don't know how to go about this, but white people have to be within the discussion. 
obviously we've been trying to do the whole follow us. And yeah, there are certain situations where it's like, we can only be the ones to, to give advice, but if we really want to talk about the problem, we have to have dialogue with everyone and we shouldn't shut people down. If they're asking something, if anything, that makes it worse. If someone's coming to you and be like, I'm having these feelings or I'm harboring, harboring these emotions, or I know this person that feels this way, this way. And they want to be candid up maybe about racism that they're dealing with. They're like, well, there's no point to even talk about it because I'll be demonized. If I talk about it, I'll be centering myself, but I really want help. I really want to have answers or I really want to understand. So I feel like the dialogue and the discourse right now is why right now with this current movement, it's advertently to me creating more racism because not only do I see white people not talking about racism, but now white people that are following in this new wave of, of this movement are okay with being whipped if that makes sense. Like they almost need that. Like they, they're like, if this is the way I can atone for my white guilt and atone for the sins of my ancestors to just keep constantly told I'm the oppressor, I'm the problem, I'm privileged, then whip me, whip me. The thing is, is I've realized a lot of white people rather have that, that are in the movement, rather have that than real dialogue. And I know that sounds strange, but it's like, while we're screaming another tone and another key, because this, this new tone of Black Lives Matter in this type of key is not the key that I signed up for in 2016 and that I hope, you know, takes over again. But this new key of how Black Lives Matter is coming out is backfiring on Black people, I feel, and making us subconsciously being viewed in our white allies' eyes as inferior. Like, I think that they think we're just helpless. Like, they just are so helpless. Like, they can't do anything without us. They need our help. And it's okay if they call me this because they don't know better. It's okay if they call me this because I really think they think we're really inferior people that just cannot stand to not have white people or their help. And the fear that I have is that's going to become enticing to some white people. And the woke praise that they get will become enticing and subconsciously, I believe some white people, and I don't, and I don't even think it's like something that they're aware of. I just feel like I'm seeing it in conversations and I'm like, do they think they're like lowercase gods? They're the ones that have to save the world. Like, it's just a really weird thing that's happening right now. Before I was really optimistic because the protests were global. At first I'm like, yeah, heard this story. Black man dies. People march for two weeks. They go back in their homes. But the fact that it was like, okay, it's two weeks. Okay. It's a month. Okay. It's three months. Oh my gosh. Tokyo, Ireland, Germany. Like I was like shocked and I was like, wow, this might be it. This might be the change. But then I start seeing how 
businesses were monetizing on the Black Lives Matter movement. Businesses were trying to get their foot in. Organizations, I could tell, was manipulating the movement in ways where it would satisfy their brand. People being so superficial, like the black boxes and the virtue signaling. And I'm like, okay, this now it's just getting even worse. And people are trying to solve the problem with little things that don't matter, like murals in the streets, not going to save us. Changing syrup bottles for breakfast, that doesn't matter. People putting Black Lives Matter in their windows and George Floyd on their shirts and selling them. It's like, what's going on? And I'm so confused. Again, another tangent. It was a needed one. But yes, that is how I'm feeling about this movement. It's really unfortunate. Before, I would have never said it. I would have been like, no, I can't. I'm going against my people. But if anything, I care about my community so much that if I see something wrong, it's like, see something, say something. Well, I'm saying something. Because I think this is going off of a cliff. And I'm like, I refuse for us to regress. I mean, we made so much progress. and. We just need to stop and like reevaluate. So everything I just said and everything I'm going to continue to say, even if people see me as the antagonist of the Black Lives Matter or of Black people, I'm not. I love Black people. I love people. I really believe America can change. I mean, we've seen history. We abolished American slavery. Civil rights movement changed the world. Dr. King changed not only America, but the world. Like, he's international. People know his name. He was only 39 when he died. I know that we can, we can do so much better, but this is not the way. I don't think this is the way, and that's why I'm being very vocal right now. And I cannot not <laughs> be vocal about it. Not when you see it so blatantly. Yeah, I'm incredibly empathetic to a lot of the anger that you spoke to that is kind of infused in certain strains of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm empathetic to it because, well, for a lot of reasons, but I think the main one is, you know, for most of American history, let's be honest, right? The media, the news organizations, who was allowed to speak on what was all controlled by white people, right? Even when black people, <laughs> until recently, really, were put in the media, put in newspapers, put on television shows, et cetera. And you can say that there's a certain version of that going on right now in the other direction, but they were filtered, right? The approved voices, the people who wouldn't rock the boat too much, right? And so finally, with the advent of social media and the advent of viral movements that allow people who never had a voice to finally have a voice, I understand it. It's kind of like, and I understand the white people on the other side of that anger, also being in some ways terrified, right? I would imagine it would be like like the the granddaughter of someone who survived the Tulsa massacre a hundred years ago in 2020 standing in the center of town, you know, and the town's been rebuilt and all the ashes of of the horrors and the deaths and the bombings have all been swept away and new buildings have been built up, right? And so anyone walking around town in 2020 you're not really going to know what happened 100 years ago, but that 
that woman, that granddaughter of the of the survivor of that massacre, she knows. And finally, she has a voice and she's pissed, right? And so she's trying to take her anger out on something that has happened and was real. But the people who are walking around today didn't do it. There's a metaphor that I used in, in another previous interview, but I, it's been sticking in my mind. And I think it's really, at least for me, it's helpful. Like we're all standing on rubble, right? I think we'd all be more empathetic to each other in general if instead of being born from our mothers, we just kind of popped into existence, right? Like we just appeared. And so we just appear and we're standing on like basically the rubble of an apocalypse that happened before we popped into existence. So we're looking around and there's just rubble everywhere and there's fires and the smoke from like a nuclear holocaust and we're looking around and we're like what the hell happened? And then slowly but surely we're we're learning, right? We're learning after we're born, after we appear on this pile of rubble and slowly we're absorbing information. We're hearing about all the horrible things that happened. We're hearing that people who looked one way did terrible things to people who looked another way. And I'm intensely empathetic to the people who want justice for those things and the things, of course, that are still ongoing right now, we have a ways to go. And I can understand and I'm empathetic with <laughs> the terrified, quote unquote, good white people on the other side of that who were like, Jesus, a lot of terrible crap went down. <laughs> and I don't know how me as one person can fix it, but I can tell that you're really upset and I want to be able to be there for you. And they don't know how. But I think that if we can understand, and I think you've spoken to this as well, if we can understand that like, we're all descended from the people who bit the apple, right? Like race isn't just a horrible thing that happened to black people. Race is a terrible thing that happened to white people too. Mm-hmm. And we're all caught up in it. <laughs> and we're trying yeah. to disentangle ourselves from this terrible thing. I think that's true. I would then say though, and you're right, race happened to us all. And no one from American slavery is living today on both sides. I would say, though, I think historically, if you look at it, if you want to use that analogy, it's like black people and white people. Yes, born on top of rubble. But I think it's more like black people's feet are in it. White people are oh, yeah, for on sure. top of it. And now maybe it's not to our necks. But we're definitely inside of it more. And it's funny because, of course, I say, yes, critically think without trying to attach your identity, more or less try to think without having an emotional response to everything. I mean, I don't do that every time. I'm not, obviously, I'm human. I'm not perfect. And I don't think emotions are bad. I know people are like, facts don't care about your feelings. I hear that all the time. True. <laughs> Yes, they facts don't care. But us as humans should care about feelings. I feel like there shouldn't be this thing where emotions and feelings are just thrown out. And it's like, ah, well, these facts say this, so it doesn't matter. It's like, let's just say American slavery is a fable. If a group of people were told this for centuries, and it's been ingrained in them for centuries, and me, as someone that's grown up in Columbus, I knew about American slavery. I knew about all the things. And it's ingrained in you in other ways, consciously and subconsciously, that you've been oppressed. You are oppressed. You are inferior. You're not like white people. And it's a continuous thing. And it gets worse as you get older. To tell people, I just don't don't think about that. Just uh, your emotions, what these facts say, that's not possible. 
for everyone. And I don't think it's wholly possible to do in every situation. And there is facts and feelings. There's evidence in anecdotal situations. But I think what needs to happen is it's complicated because people are like, well, some people are like white people are the enemy. Some people are like, well, white people get in the way and all this stuff. But I don't think the way we want equality or the way we want liberation for black people or a liberation for America just to come out of this mess is going to happen in the way that we all want it to. It's going to be a sacrifice with everyone. We're going to have to give and take. And I think that's what's harboring and like halting this progress is people want it to look the way they feel it should look because they feel like this is the way to get it and because it's justified, but it might not be that way. It might be, okay, we do have to listen to white people. They do need to see at the table with us in discussions. We do might, we might have to lose a little energy exhaustion we might have to get upset and pissed and yell at each other during some of these discussions. We might have to be uncomfortable. We might have to do all this stuff. And I'm willing to do that. I mean, if Harriet Tubman can run away from literal, physical white supremacy that had her chain, I think I can have hard conversations where I might be at great odds and tension and even yelling and whatever but if that's going to move us and nudge us closer, if we just come to the to the table consenting, like this might get ugly, but it's going to need to happen, then we will get further. But I think people want onus on how it's supposed to look, but you can't own the other side's reactions and feelings to how they aren't fitting in to the solution, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's like couples therapy in a way, right? It's the idea of, do you want to get your relationship to a place where it's healthy? Or do you want to only be right? And now granted, you know, and I want to make sure I'm emphasizing this because obviously this is the first time you and I have talked. And in the back of my mind, I'm I'm remembering all the <laughs> previous recorded conversations I've had, but I want to make sure I'm adding additional context to this conversation. When I talk about the rubble, I mean, obviously, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, the the black people waking up in the middle of this rubble are the ones that are injured or on fire or have their their feet underneath the rubble. It's more the idea that that when we are born into this world, there's been a lot of horrible crap that's happened before. And I think even well-intentioned people want to do the right thing and they want to help and fix things. But we're kind of just born into a continuous trauma that we're all trying to figure out how to alleviate, you know, um, trauma that has happened to black Americans, indigenous Americans, all different kinds of communities that have been historically marginalized. Speaking on identity, there's, there's one thing that I've been kind of rolling around in my mind that I, I want to th- run by you because I think it relates to your tablet essay and some of your other, your other work, right? So, Blackness, as we understand it as a construct, exists only because whiteness exists, right? Without, without blackness, without, there is no need for whiteness. Without whiteness, there is no need for blackness. They exist in opposition to each other because that is why they were created, right? To justify chattel slavery, to justify racial supremacy. And, you know, it exists as a, 
a force constructed by white supremacists to justify enslavement and mistreatment on the basis of basically what is just an immutable characteristic. But over time, as people who called themselves white told people they had assigned as black that they were all, quote, the same based on nothing but skin tone, it was kind of understandable that obviously a common bond is then formed by the people who were assigned that trait, right? And this is based on on readings of, of black writers that I've, I've read over the years. Basically, the idea was is that, well, if they're going to tell us that one of us represents the whole, then we will see an attack on one of us as an attack on all of us, right? That's a, a natural survi- survival mechanism. If any one of us can be walking down the street and attacked the exact same way, then I suppose we are a community, which is a necessary survival mechanism in, in the face of kind of unrelenting racial oppression. And as we see in the civil rights movement, a useful construct for the sort of collective action that is necessary for revolutionary change. But hearkening back to your essay on heterodoxy, I often wonder about the other edge of that sword, right? Do you feel that heterodox thought can truly exist in the quote unquote black community as long as people who are assigned blackness continue to think of themselves as a community? Can individualism exist within a collective identity? That's the million dollar question. And <laughs> yeah, just going to casually throw it out to you on a podcast. Yeah, let me talk <laughs> about this and let me answer it for everyone. I'm kidding. Okay, so I guess there is an answer. A black person can be an individual if they choose, if they want. Will that be accepted? by the majority of black people no now that that's what happens when if a black person wants to be an individual and they have unorthodox thoughts that are against the quote-unquote black narrative they are cast out of blackness cast away as a coon as anti-black as an uncle tom so there will be a cost if you want to be a black individual with these this type of thinking now, if you're black, if you want to be a black individual and your thoughts so happen to align with the quote unquote black narrative, then I guess you're fine. And I guess, are you an individual? I mean, that's still a thing. But there is a cost if black people want to stay a collective and be one on everything. Can a black person be an individual? Yes, but it'll come at a cost. But the thing is, is my community, we keep telling people. We're not a monolith. We keep saying there's diverse opinions. There's diversity within our community, within our thoughts. But ask that to Kanye West, to Steve Harvey, to Charles Barkley, to Terry Crews, to Ice Cube just now. (laughs) Like people who do the thing that isn't black or isn't what we should do or isn't assimilate, so to speak, to what blackness is they're cast out and they're not just criticized. I mean, they're, they're marked as you're just not, you're not here. You're not a part of it. And that is why I wanted to write this essay because in a way where I do tell unfold my own dirty laundry and say, I was this person that did this. And I want to show how this harms us, how this is actually hypocritical that what we do. We say we're individuals, but right when someone wants to be one, that might say something that might not be what is traditionally black. I mean, isn't that the point, though? 
it's diversity. Like not everyone thinks the same. This does not happen with the white community. White, the white community can think however they want. I've never heard people saying, well, Trump isn't white anymore because how he thinks Biden's not white. Hillary Clinton's not white. Justin Bieber's not white. They might call them other names, but I don't really see their identity or them cast out as anti-white. Like, I don't see that happening. But with Black people, I do feel like because we feel there's a lot of harm that does target us, we have to stay close-knit. Like, we have to be soldiers in line. But we want to be individual soldiers, but all on this mission together. And we can still be on the mission together, but we can't say someone's not this because they think a certain way. Like, who are you to say that? To call someone that is anti-Black. I mean, to say that you can't do this or think this way or like this thing or whatever, you're not Black is, is something that would have happened to us by a bigot in the 50s, thinking that we're this uppity Negro because we think this way and we say it to each other. And I think it's not even out of hate when we say, I think it's more out of fear, a weird fear where it's like, you just, you can't, we can't afford for you to sound similar to the enemies we're fighting. We need as many soldiers as we can, but because I am black, I am with you no matter what. That's the thing. Like, because I have black skin, and I mentioned this in one of my other essays called Our Skin Problem. Blackness and whiteness and these racial categories started more as, you know, social constructs where European Spaniards were like, well, we want to keep our supremacy. Let's just make it white and let's make them black and let's make them this, this, this. And it was how society would treat people was how it real the race really happened. But then the more people were born with these these skin complexions, it was like you were assigned those things as well. So now it's more like a genetic thing. Like being black and being born black, yes, you might not you're not you're not gonna know what it is to be black. Like me when I was one, I didn't know, but I knew at seven because society started treating me like I was black. And that's when the social construct idea comes in and kind of makes your innocence shed away from not knowing that, oh, I just have skin. Oh, the skin actually means something. Oh, because I have the skin, I am akin with these people. Oh, okay. So I guess we do have an assignment that we're on and we're all fighting for liberation. Oh, okay. So I guess this is the agenda for us. Okay, so I can't go against this thing because if I, I go against this thing, I become an additional enemy to my people. So I think it's more like that. But that's something I think we do to each other more than, well, I have to be, I have to be careful when I say this. I don't want to say the world doesn't do it to us, but the world wouldn't call, like other non-Blacks wouldn't call Terry Crews because I, I saw it happen. Wouldn't call Terry Crews or Ice Cube or Kanye West sellouts if we weren't. If we weren't saying that they were sellouts, that gives the green light. Oh, okay, so they're not black. Oh, okay, so I guess that means that they're going against what the authentic blacks want. So they're sellouts. But if we don't say anyone's a sellout, 
no one's going to know. Not, not no, but you know what I mean? Like no one's going to detect something's off. They're just going to think that's a person having a different opinion. Just like any other person in any other race has a different opinion than the people in their race. I do not raise an eyebrow and think, oh, they're going against. I just don't think that. But with our communities, especially, it is like that. It's like, these are, this is a list of stuff you just don't say. Here's a whole other book of things you can be. These things you can't be. The thing is, is those things that are on that list, who put them there? And a lot of people that are exploring that list are coming up with things that actually could help us. But we're not listening to them because we've cast them out. So to answer your question (laughs) in a short sentence, like Coates would make me, I would say, yes, Black people can be an individual. But depending on what you say, it might come at a cost. Yeah. And I imagine that perhaps long after you and I are dead, hopefully over the decades, enough people are willing to basically pay the cost of rebelling against what, quote unquote, the correct thoughts and the correct opinions are to have to ultimately expand what it, quote unquote, means to be black to a place where it's kind of like what you said, there's no at least in none of the circles that I run in, I'm sure there are some pockets of the US where there is a quote, right way to be white. But I certainly and thankfully don't know any of those people. But I sometimes think about how there might be a a kind of painful sense of loss if one truly does transcend a community, even a community that that was that was created for you by oppressors hundreds of years ago. There is a lot of, I imagine, kinship and belonging within a community, especially a community that you can feel is kind of an ancestral heritage that you can feel proud of because people who looked like you fought a fight that you feel that you're part of. And there is this great stand-up bit, and it's hilarious because it's true, by the stand-up comedian Tom Segura. He's a a, a, a white comedian, but <laughs> he has this great bit where he was talking about basically he was walking in a public park and there was a black guy and then there was a white guy and the white guy looked like homeless or you know mentally ill basically and the white guy like screams the n-word right and so you know the he and, and the black guy he screamed it at start getting into a fight and there's this there's this basically he was like this other black guy who he didn't even see like basically to quote Segura, basically like popped out of the bushes and like helped the the other black guy like in the fight, right? Like all of a sudden there was this unspoken bond between these two guys who did not know each other <laughs> and just kind of came together in this park because of a, a shared history and a common bond. And Segura goes on to say like, you know, as a white guy, he's watching this happen and he's like, I felt nothing. Like he felt no commonality. He felt no... He felt no desire to want to help out the white guy. He felt like there was, he was like, go for it, guys. You know, beat the crap out of him. I really don't care. And I would say that's that's a, a good thing. <laughs> I don't think we want white people to begin all of a sudden feeling a kind of racial solidarity with one another, at least not again, because that doesn't ever seem to go well. But I would imagine, though, that there would be a kind of 
loss or pain to be a part of a community. And then let's say the, pro- you know, however many decades from now, the problems are solved, the issues are alleviated, equality is whatever that looks like is achieved. I would imagine that losing that sense of community could be profoundly painful. No? That's the thing. I don't see it like me wanting to be an individual losing a community. I I think it's more like, yeah, we should break away from us being a collective that's attached to one narrative and see that we're 40 million narratives and we can all still be in a community. And it's funny because I told my, I asked my friend this, actually, I asked my friend if there's like a white community, so to speak, or a white culture in the way of there's a black culture, a black community. And he said, no, he said, it's kind of just individualism. We don't really see it like a community. We all see, yeah, we're white, but it's not like I feel this kinship. But for me, I do feel a kinship. I can go to Iowa and I can walk into a store and I might not even need to smile at this black person that I see, but I'll just give a head nod. And it's like an unspoken thing. Like I just get you. And it's just, and it's everywhere. Like my parents have done it. Like you just say hi, or it's just this nod or, you know, this gesture, just like, like I see you, like we're in this, like, I know you've probably been through something. It's just, it's, and it's something that it's hard to articulate. It's just this community of kinship. And yeah, I actually, to some degree, I, I understand it, but, and I think this is, inst- this was instructive for me. I understand it when I go abroad in that when I was in Spain, I had lost most of the Spanish that I learned in high school and college. And I was traveling by myself and I had been there for about a week and the people in Spain, at least that I was running into their English wasn't, you know, that great or non-existent. My Spanish was God awful. And, um, I was getting kind of lonely after a few days. Right. And I'm walking around and then all of a sudden, you know, like 50 yards away, I hear American English. I hear American accented English. And I just make like a beeline over to these people. And they were, you know, seven, eight, you know, 10 years younger than me. But like instantly I just went over to them and I was like, can I hang out with you guys for a while? And I felt this intense kinship. And why I think this was instructive for me when I was I guess you could say doing the work in terms of learning about race and the idea of being racialized and reading through through black authors. I, I understood. I was like, well, I suppose if you were treated like a foreigner in your own country for hundreds of years and you were basically like looked at as a foreign entity, I imagine you would experience a similar feeling walking around in your own country as I would walking around a foreign one. Right. And then all of a sudden I come across someone who speaks American English and I feel an instant kinship that I wouldn't feel if I were here. But for so long, I mean, I'm not I'm not telling you anything new, but for so long, you know, I think that that was kind of that that was and is the experience. Right. You were basically treated like a foreigner in the land that the only land you've ever known. And so when you see someone else who has that who has that experience, you feel a kinship like the one I felt in Spain. Yeah. And just a tat. So that feeling that you felt a relief when you saw an American, even if you don't know their name, they're American and you just, you have something in common, a connection. And yes, it is like that in the U S it's like, I don't know who made this quote. I don't think it was James Baldwin, but it's like, 
to be black and American is to be American without privilege or American without feeling American, but black without like knowing your history and your history is something that's diabolical. It's like your history is American slavery and you see it's trickling down still in 2020. And so, yeah, it's like a, a double thing that happens where it's like, Oh, a black person. And we share this, our lineage, like we share this thing. Cause I was this person, obviously. And I don't want to say I was this person like these, that is bad. I don't think that how I feel is the way, you know, to go necessarily. I don't want to be like, Oh, I am enlightened or woke. I hate the word woke. Woke, just <laughs> get off that. But, um, yeah. Well, you know when it's the title of a, a show on Hulu that the word has probably run its course. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's done. I think we should <laughs> get rid of that in 2020. But I get it to like 100%. But I just don't see us losing a community of people or individuals. But I understand people aren't really willing to take that risk because there's only 13% of us in America and we can't afford to lose anyone. And I can understand where it's like, okay, you don't want to be for us. Then we have, we have no choice but to mark you off because we can't have anyone outside our community believing you. Like, I get that. Like, I get that where it's like, we can't have you still being considered one of us and saying something that doesn't represent us and be in a potential harm to us. We have to mark you off. We don't want to do it. Well, we have to call you a coon. We don't want to do it. Well, we have to say you're not black. We have to say you're an uncle Tom. So no one takes you seriously. And if you want to be an enemy, fine, but you're an enemy that's without a pack and no one will want you in theirs. We're going to have to exile you. I get that, but we don't have to do that. Doing that does not help doing that makes more division with in our community doing that doesn't necessarily make us closer it just makes what it means to be black that much smaller like if you even put your toe outside of it now it's like you're out yeah and it forecloses the possibility of growth right i mean it sounds to me and correct me if i'm wrong that the britney of 2015, 2016 would have been upset at the Britney of 2020. But that was but that was a process you had to go through. I would have called myself a coon. <laughs> I like this. No, I seriously would have. It's funny because people assume if you like, let's say, John McWhorter or Thomas Sowell or Coleman Hughes, you just you you can't like Coates or Baldwin or Maya Angelo. Like there's no way they're in different types of houses for me i'm like to me there's no house like there's there's no binary to me everyone brings something and i don't see that because i like coleman hughes i can't like coats because i enjoy jordan peterson i can't like this or that like i am going to listen to as many minds as i can and make up my mind and critically get to a point where i'm like can i consider what they have and if what they've offered up does not fit, then fine. But I don't have to throw that person out. 
And I think that's the problem. Yeah, I would have in 2015, 16, I would have said the opposite of what I just said. I would have said, there's just no way your mind or your being black, you could accept what they say. You have to just like Baldwin's doctrine, like that's it. And there's no room for soul. If you believe soul, you really don't like Baldwin. You really are not understanding who he is. And now I see that it's like an equation puzzle to me. It's like this fits this. Okay, this, this, this. And you can't take everything in because not everyone's spot on, but not everyone's incorrect. And there might be that one person. Let's just go on a ledge. Kanye West might say 99% things that are just like, what? He might say that one thing where it's like, huh, that's interesting. And that just might be something you sit on and think about. And it might not be anything like by itself, but then you're like, well, Thomas Sowell kind of said, okay, let's connect. Okay. James Baldwin kind of said, Toni Morrison, hmm, let's see what this means. Then something grows. But just to be like, nah, no, you're not saying everything. No one says everything. Everyone's inspired by everyone. So that's how I, I see it now. But I totally agree, like, not agree. I totally understand if someone, a black person hears me and they're like, yo, homie, like, what is she talking about? I get it. Like, I have empathy for, for that. I'm not ignorant to that. I'm not ignorant to the fact that I know I'm going to sound like a coon to someone. I'm just like, I am willing to sound like a coon because I'm going to say the truth. And to some people that are my black friends who are very, 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 very pro-black, we've had debates. Not that I'm not. Okay, that sounds horrible. You can edit that out. Very against what I would say. Let's just say very against Coleman Hughes. Like they would have been very on Tanasi Coates, like, no, we are not listening to Coleman. We've had debates. Just to just to cut in real quick, I, I think the idea of what it means to be quote unquote pro-black, that I imagine needs to expand. That you're not betraying you're not betraying your community by entertaining a multitude of ideas, right? True. Because I consider myself very pro black, but I'm I'm very, very pro-black in the way of I'm willing to be a voice that's like a sacrificial lamb to scrutiny because even though outwardly in public, you might be like, she's this. I'm like, they'll listen. Like they'll hear me. They might be like, no, we don't listen to her. And they might be reading my essay at home alone. And I'm like, that's fine. Like that is perfectly fine because there's sacrifices that's just going to have to happen. Like if, if I really believe this, then obviously I'm going to be hit with some adverse, not some, a lot of adversity. I'm, I know that like, I'm going to be hit with challenges all the time, but I think honestly going through my program with criticism and having to debate my point with 10 other aspiring critics that were very intelligent who we all thought differently, who my director said that she's done this program for over a decade. Thomas 
Chatterson Williams actually was one of her students 11, 12 years ago. She said with our program specifically, she's never seen a classroom every day that it was in session that we came in and it was war. It was war because we all came in like, this is how we think. This is what we, we believe. And we we're willing to fight for it. We stayed close, but it did sever some ties. But we're like, you know what? This is what we're going to be doing. So we, if we can't stand up, like I looked at it, if I can't stand up against you guys, I won't be able to stand up against the public. I have to. And that did come at a cost for me because people just, you know, whatever. That's Now we're going somewhere else. <laughs> well, I think difficult conversations require the sacrificing of sacred cows, right? And to put into an, another light that I would probably feel a little more comfortable speaking on is think about like the word socialism in the United States, right? And for so long, it was basically a dirty word. And the word gets kind of like painted on anything, you know, in kind of like a red scare kind of way. But the way that that word is tossed around prevents conversations that could actually end up benefiting the whole of the American people, right? Whether it's Medicare for all, whatever the universal health care plan that hopefully we can get to one day that we can all agree on that would ultimately end up saving a lot of lives, right? But unless you have Americans, you know, who in the past and in the present are doing that work and are, are getting smeared with that label over and over again, they're the ones who are moving the needle in terms of being able to have a healthy conversation about the S word that allows people to then expand their idea of what healthcare can look like. And so you can, I mean, all you have to do is just look at polling around the idea of a universal healthcare plan from like 1990 and compare it to what people's views are on something like Medicare, Medicare for all today, right? But it required people getting painted with that slur, oh, you're a socialist, oh, you're a communist, over and over again before they were finally able to move the Overton window of what progress around something like universal healthcare could look like, right? Mm-hmm. I do think you're right. Like terms like that are just so wonder weaponized and the meaning of it is just lost because they mean so many different things, but it's something that I'm still with, with blackness or being pro black or black thought. It's something that, it's relatively new, like for me. And it's been a year when I've been going through this process. So it's like, I still find myself, like I'm taking my time with it. Like I'm always a learner all the time. Like I'm never like someone that's like, well, I've mastered this. I can move on. Like, no, like this is something I know I'm going to, if anything, always stumble and have to keep learning and learning because even the people that I'm listening to that's helping me are like, I'm still students with this, but I don't know the answer. All I know is that critical thinking for me has saved myself and has for me going off a cliff. And also it's funny because you, you brought up, I don't know when you, you, you talked about being black and having anger. And I wrote it down because it's true. Like when you're black and you're in America, James Baldwin says this, as you can tell, I like him a lot too. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. He says to be black is to always be in rage. So there's two ways. One, 
True. But the thing is, is what sometimes what, and I'll just, I'll just talk for me, for me. I'm not going to just say my community. I'm not going to assume for me when I read Baldwin or I read other people, I used to read it as if I was in that time. Baldwin was saying to be black in America is to be enraged all the time. He said that in the fifties. Right now, people take on that, yeah, to be angry, to be, and it's true, like, but it's not the same anger he was talking about. And when we don't acknowledge there's a gap there, we don't acknowledge the progression we've made. And also other essays he's talked about after that quote, in Notes of a Native Son, there's a whole essay about him talking about how Black anger does nothing for black people and does everything against us. He called it blind fever and that that could very well literally kill us, our anger, our rage. And he said the one way to help rid that, to help rid it and duly to help white people not insert us with this type of rage, he said something so radical that no one really talks about because no one wants to hear that. But he says, you need to love them. Like you need to love them out of the need of wanting a Negro. When he says, I am not your Negro, he meant it. But he says, you need to love them to hold a mirror up to them for them to ask themselves why they need you as a Negro, why they need your blackness to have whiteness, why you are a like a measuring stick of how to measure their superiority against your inferiority. And people don't really talk about that. They kind of skip over that, but they talk about, well, Baldwin said when, like, yes, he said that and it's true, but it's not the same rage. And when people like read things that happened centuries ago and, and when we didn't have voting rights and like when the freedom writers are talking about what they're going through, people read it as if they are them. Like they read it as if I am in 1939 and I am this person. It's like, no, it's 2020. There's a new tone now. Yes, we do go through things. Yes, we are still facing racism and systemic racism. Yes, we have rage, but it's not the rage Baldwin was talking about. And that's probably real radical. That's probably one of the most radical things I've said today in this conversation. <laughs> but it's true. I, For me, I realized... That's a big mistake that I made. I have to be conscious of the time period. And that means everything, the context. Like even with my own work, people need to realize pieces that I wrote in 2015 is not how I feel now. So if you read that, you're going to be like, oh, that's how Britney is. And that's no 2015. That's the context. Now things have changed. I've evolved. And this is what I am in 2020. Things like that was 1960. Very true. Yes, but we've evolved. We're in 2020. Look at what's going on right now. And sometimes we carry on the weight of the past, but it's like, that's not the same weight. The burden has lessened, but it's hard for us to see that, like see the progress. And I guess that's why I kind of reframed how I see our history and reframed how I see the past. I don't see it like, oh my gosh, like we were slaves and like all this stuff 
like it's an embarrassment. I see it like I am a descendant from a slave. This is pretty remarkable. Like I even see it like Booker T. Washington was a slave and he founded Tuskegee University, the same university my dad went to. And my dad grew up under Jim Crow and his father only had like a third grade reading level education. Some black people see blackness or being black as just such a burden. I'm like, it's such a blessing. All of this stuff that's that we've been through and we've gotten through, like roadblocks, that's actually kind of impossible. Like the fact that we weren't allowed to even touch a book and we would have been dead. And now the one of the best writers and authors of our time are black. I mean, and it's not like they're good for a black writer. They're magnificent because they just are. And they just happen to be, be, be black people. Like I hear Coates and Baldwin and all these people reference more in essays and whatever with white, black, Hispanic, whoever. Not because they're just, oh, they're black and they're cool and they're good. No, it's because they're just really great. That's how I look at our community. And I just wish more of our community looked at blackness that way and didn't see it just as something that being black were a target and we need to be in fear all the time. And if anything, racism is so afraid of us. Racism hasn't killed us yet. I mean, yes, you could, it has, it has. I don't want to say that, but racism has not stopped our race. Like racism has not negated the black community off the face of the earth. We weren't even supposed to be free. That was not like, they were like, we're going to bring these people over and then eventually they'll be free. Like, no, we were always meant to be slaves. And now we've progressed to this point, to the point where we've had a black president and Racism still couldn't, could not, not even like stop us from becoming president. Like, that's how I see him. Just like, we are too cool for this. Like, we're just, we are such amazing people. If racism is something that we all do need to fight, which it is, like everyone, but shouldn't the soldiers be sporadic around and try to look at racism from all the angles and attack it from all angles and not just one way that is why we should be championing black diversity to look at our situation from as many angles why do we want to look through one lens 40 million of us try to look through one lens when 40 million lenses could be on this thing but we say no you can't because we all have to look at it this way and take our turn and look just see what we can see. And then the one moves and see, no, for we can take this thing down easier if we allow everyone to have their voice. Even the ones that slip up. Okay, we, well, you don't have the answer. So moving on. So that's how I see that. No, I think you, you articulate it so well in your essay, which is that I don't like using the phrase black thought because I, I I think that like thought is thought and you know like thought is something that exists in the brain but for the purpose of the purpose of the uh, the conversation I'll use the phrase but like that black thought has always been diverse and that there's this that, that there's a tendency when looking backward to think that it was always unified but there have always been conversations happening amongst black Americans about what the quote unquote right way 
to fight against prejudice, to better one's community, to strike a path forward. It's always been a heterogeneous, you know, sometimes heated conversation about about what the best way to move forward is. But only when we look backwards, oftentimes, do we think that, oh, well, they were kind of in some ways how we look at the founding fathers, where we're like, oh, they were all in perfect agreement and they all had the same, they all had the same idea of how to run the country and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, no, it was like super messy. And they like hashed it out. And then they finally kind of made this crazy compromise. And it's the same, it's the same thing with all groups of people. And there are a couple things that I was thinking of when you were talking. And I should be taking more notes <laughs> more notes. I have this whole I have this whole window where I've been supposed to be writing it down, but I've also been really intently listening to you. Ah, the double-edged sword. But one thing that I really want to hammer on, and, and it speaks to what you said at the start of the conversation, which is you articulated this fear of, I don't know if it was a fear, but you articulated a worry that white people, you know, in 2020 could get the wrong impression that black people are weak or need help or can't help themselves. And and that was something that you thought was present in some strains of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's something that I've noticed as well. And it honestly infuriates me because in my opinion, black Americans made this country what it is, right? Like the ideas of what I view, like as a white American in 2020, of what I understand equality to be, those ideas would literally not exist in my head without black Americans, like without them expanding what the idea of, of what equality means, what without them expanding our basically collective consciousness about what it means to be an American. I don't even know, like if in an alternate, in an alternate fictionalized reality in which black Americans were never present on, you know, US soil, I'm barely convinced that we would probably still be living in like basically a white ethno state. I don't think that immigration may have ever been opened up to the rest of the world. Like this idea of believing that someone can come from anywhere in the world and become an American. I believe that that's a rather radical, I don't even have to believe it. I can just state it. It's a radical idea that is almost ahistorical. And I think that it really only exists because of the hard won victories that black Americans won. And I, I mean, I could spend another, you know, 20 minutes talking about cultural and artistic and cuisine. I mean, like there, there's just, I mean, the list is so long. That's our heritage. Like that is American heritage. It's, and granted it is of course, black American heritage, but it's American heritage as American as George Washington, as American as Thomas Jefferson, as American as Thomas Edison, just American, you know, and our concepts of how we, we see ourselves is incredibly indebted to the strength and the resilience of, of Black Americans. And I, I don't mean to, to get on a soapbox here. <laughs> I am talking to a Black woman after all. But I do worry, and the reason I went on that tangent is I, I worry that the narrative that is being spun by the media, by certain folks in white spaces, or even some Black activists, whether intentionally or not, this idea that that people within the black community are just forever beleaguered, it's ahistorical and untrue and it upsets me. I think the reason why I'm seeing more of white people subconsciously viewing black people as people that need 
they're helpless or that are inferior, even though they're fighting against that whole notion that we're not. I think that white people, when they get into this movement and they want to be allies, they just, they want to be good. Not in a way where I just want to be off the hook, but they just want to help. But then I think they get confused and they don't know how to help because they're told not to speak or, or they feel shut out or they feel like, okay, I don't want to center myself. So, but the one thing they know that they can do is to show that they're for black people and for the movement is help black people and white people have white guilt and in order for them to kind of soothe their white guilt, they have to help black people. But this white guilt, I feel, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this white guilt, I feel, is like a continuous thing where because the, the notion of racism is a continuous thing and it has not ended, white guilt will also be on a continuum. And so they'll always need something or someone to help and they will always need their charity cases. And I know this is sounding really bad, but that is why I'm feeling like what we're trying to untangle, we're getting more entangled because if the goal for white people, for them subconsciously internally is to always help and always try to soothe their white guilt, even though what they're aiming for is to help, but really I feel like it's trying to soothe this guiltiness that they feel. They're probably always going to see black people as inferior because they always need something to help. If they see black people like appear and equal, then they can't help that person. But to, to see a black person and say, well, I was watching this thing and they're talking about voter suppression, which is obviously real. But the way the white people were talking to this interviewer, who was white, and he was asking them questions on why do you think this is happening? I've seen this video. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, it's crazy. Beyond. It is beyond. It's so infantilizing. Yeah, they were like, well, black people don't know how to get IDs. Black people don't know how... Like they don't have identification, they don't have birth certificates, they don't have this, 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 and then they, they don't know how to, they don't know how to use the internet. They don't know how to use the internet. They don't have access to it. They don't uh. know car. And then they go into another neighborhood where it's predominantly black, and then they ask these people like, "Do you have an ID?" They're all like, "Yeah." Do you do you know how to get one? Well, they're like, "Well, duh, yeah." Like they're like, "I don't know a black person doesn't have an ID," and. Voter suppression happens in all these ways, but the fact that white people who literally are trying to help and are literally holding up signs like Black Lives Matter and, and trying to amplify our voice think this of us. Think of us as children almost. Like, oh, they're just poor things. Like, they don't know. But we are white and we know better and we have to help. Like, that's the tone I get. <laughs> I mean, man, if that's not white supremacy, I don't know what the hell is. I know. That's what like I if said. I'm, if, I'm, if I'm being totally honest. No, that like, is what I said. It's creating more racism yeah. on accident. 
the whole point is for us not to be inferior. And no matter if it comes in a way in blue or red or whatever, it's still white supremacy. I mean, it's still someone thinking that of us and thinking we're inferior is, is the issue. And that is what I see. And I'm just trying to figure out, I mean, cause I grew up in a very white town, but you know, I was really into baseball two of my favorite baseball players to read about as a kid were Jackie Robinson and Hank Aaron. And even as like a, you know, a 10, 11, 12 year old, like reading their, reading their biographies, you don't have to know a black person in real life to read those biographies and come away thinking these are some of the strongest men I've ever read about. And so I'm trying to figure out when I watched that video, I was like, have these not even just have they ever, do they have friends who are black? Like, have they read about any of the famous and strong and forthright and powerful black Americans who have come before us? Like, what, what, in, in your opinion, how are these narratives of weakness and infantilization, how are they seeping into our discourse? People don't even know our history. They know the history of the oppressive side of our history. They know, oh my gosh, black people are slaves. They couldn't vote. They're being shot. They are seen as thugs, criminals. They are 70% of the prison population. They're this, there's that. There's Chicago, there's this. Oh my gosh. Like, of course, of course they need our help. Because look at us, we're white and we we have privilege and and we grow up in these in these privileged and affluent spaces and we have doctors and all these presidents and our lineage is this and we've always been able to vote and all this stuff. Of course, we have to give to these poor people. But they don't know a lot of these people that you, um, high, you hold at high regard got inspired by Black people who were taught by Black people whose heroes were black. They don't understand really who Dr. King was. They know the speech. They know he died. Do you not know what he did in between? Do you not know when, how old he was when he started and when he died? Do you not know the other black activists like the Black Panthers and what they did? Do you not know all of these black authors, all of these black writers? Do you not even know the the um, history of our president and Michelle Obama, like the fact that people really think we just cannot even wipe the drool off our faces without a white person putting an American flag tissue to our mouths is really, I mean, condescending isn't the word. It is sad and it really makes me mad because I wrote an essay called I am not your hashtag play on words I am not your negro and why I'm critical of white allyship I wrote this before this essay and tablet and I wrote it because I was like okay yes of course there's you know there's KKK, there's all these org- other organizations against black people. Yeah. But I'm looking at people who are trying to help us, who call themselves allies, like Dr. King in his Birmingham letters in a Birmingham jail, from a Birmingham jail, when he talked about specifically this paragraph about allyship, basically. And he said that the biggest stumbling block 
It's not the Ku Klux Klaner. It's the white moderate who tells him to wait, who tells him how to get justice, who tells him that, oh, we shouldn't do this or demonstrate, who tells him he was wrong and that he getting arrested for demonstrating was on him because blah, blah, blah. Like, he was interrogating the people on his side and saying, you're actually in my way. And so with this allyship essay, I'm not trying to be king. No one can, even though my last name is King. I'm not Dr. King. But I really was like, why are you helping us? Like, why are you really helping us? Are you helping us? Because when you say Black Lives Matter, does that, and when you go out to these protests, is it for your life? So you can be a good white person or you can be seen doing something for black people and then be like, well, I did my deed, go home, take off your shirt, done, post my Instagram photo, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Everyone knows that I, I'm woke. But then you don't actually do the necessary steps that we asked at these protests. And I only say this as someone that was a leader who majority of my members were were 90%, 95% were white. And a lot of them really helped me. But there were pockets of people who only came when there was a big event where they could take a picture But when I would say, okay, I need people to come to the city councils with me. I need people to come to the police board meetings with me. They're about to have a president inserted, reinstated, and we need to really interrogate why this person's on this board for 20 years and the terms are four years. This person should have been out of here. I need voices. I need you in in these rooms. And two people come. But then 50 people come for the event. But when I need your voice, you're not there. So that is why I kind of harken back to those memories when I wrote this in 2019, because I was like, this is a millions of people in the street. And as much as I want to be like, Brittany, be optimistic, just believe that there, I was like, you know, 1% of them are doing the stuff that they're actually saying they're doing. They're resharing all this like, oh yeah, call these people. Justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for George Floyd, justice for Ahmaud Aubrey, justice for this person, this person, this person. Call these things. Call this. I know you're not calling, though. Like, I know you're not. Like, you're not calling. You're doing this to save face. And that is why I, I have, as much as I'm, I'm, I critique the fact that there's a lack of acceptance of diversity with my community, I'm looking at, I'm also looking at white people like, you're not helping us either. The ones that seem like they're helping us, I feel like you're just, you're petting me on the head like a dog. Like I'm something that you can tote around and say, look what I'm helping. Not that you want me to be a peer, but you want something to hold, to caress, to make you, your heart feel well that you're not like the other side. It was a few months ago, and I can't remember what I saw that triggered the thought, but I don't know if it was, it it was just all the photos I was seeing or the signs or, you know, all these other things. But this thought just popped into my head and I was like, George Floyd is the Livestrong bracelet for white people. Mm. You know, (laughs) for a lot of them anyway, you know, but, and so cynically, I would say, you know, a lot of people wore the Livestrong bracelet so that they could show everyone else how much they cared about cancer. So that would be the cynical part, right? Exactly. But the optimistic part is they still did raise a hell of a lot of money for cancer. 
even if only 1% of the folks marching in the street actually do something beyond just marching, it's probably still a really big 1%. And I do think, you know, and, and obviously this is me, <laughs> this is me speaking on the outside as a white guy, but I do think that it is rather radical in a good way that some of these marches are what, like you were saying, like 90% white. And I think that's that's kind of ahistorical, isn't it? In that I don't, I can't, I personally can't think of a march, at least within the last 10 years, I think even, I mean, anytime before in American history, really, that was about an issue that I, predominantly pertained to black Americans that had marches that were predominantly white in their makeup. And that is a rather radically new thing, I think, in American history, and I think a sign of progress. Well, it's funny you you say the lift strong bracelets. I said that like Black Lives Matter is now like that safety pin for white people. But okay, so there's two things to what you said. One can look at that, to look at the movement happening now and seeing like a lot of white people coming out and be like, wow, we progressed because yes, this wouldn't have been a decade ago. But now it's weird because I think a decade ago there was much more to lose if you came out white or black and were in the streets, so to speak, fighting against being outspoken against racism in this way, in a radical way, I think there was way much more to lose, not in the same tone, but like with Dr. King, for them, it was life or death, literally. If not death, you know, people lose their jobs, their reputations, there was actual residual damage that happened when someone participated in a movement in the 50s and 60s. It, you were either beaten, bruised, or death threats, something. Now, it's like, if you don't have a photo of yourself at a protest, it's like, where have you been? It's accepted by society. It's almost expected for you to be at a protest now. That is why I can't be too excited about a sea of white people because I feel like it's almost like you, they feel like they have to be out there. But the thing is, is you could look at it like in an optimistic light, which I rather do. And it's funny, my friend, he actually made me, he, he made me kind of pivot and look at it more optimistic because we're having a deep conversation and this is on my YouTube podcast, American shade, but, and my friend, I keep referring to, he's a retired white engineer and he's 60 and he's like one of my good friends. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I think part one is on your YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he would, he did black lives matter with me. Um, and we have been having a lot of deep conversations. Yeah. It's a great combo. Yes. And he says something that's going to be in a part two. He's like, you haven't been over a BLM in three years. I said, yes. And he said, but you know, when the Portland demonstrations happened and the Washington DC demonstrations happens with like a couple of groups who were walking down, I guess some streets where diners were at and they were like, you know, knocking over food and making them hold their fist up and say black lives matter, or they would call them white supremacists. Like, you felt the need, you felt compelled to go on your social media and say, 
I basically denounced those groups and said, this is disparaging to the Black Lives Matter movement. These people are not like represent the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, you felt compelled, even though you were over at BLM, but you felt like you'd be complicit to that if you don't say something. I said, yes. And he said, well, that's how at least me and other white people, I think, feel that if we're not out there, we're complicit. So you see a lot of us out there. I think he's like, he's like, I think a lot what you're saying is some of them, but I think majority of them feel like if I don't go out now, then I am complicit in this. If I don't show up now where it's so overt in my face, then people have every right to say that I don't care and that my silence is violence. So I'm like, okay, I can look at it that way. And I'm choosing to kind of look more into that lens, but it's really hard to, when you know, like when you have archival evidence of the opposite as someone that led and just, you're like, it's almost like I don't want to give my hopes up. Like I, I want to be wrong. Like I don't want to be right. Like I want to be wrong. But when, when the first things start happening in 2014, I really thought something was going to happen and nothing happened. 2016, I'm like, oh, not nothing, but not enough. And then 2016, I'm like, oh, something. And then, nope, let down again. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not putting no emotions in this anymore. I'm not going to get hurt again. I think that's really what it is. I don't want to be disappointed again like I was in the previous years. And I told my friend, it's almost like an abusive relationship. It's like we keep getting hit and whipped and killed and and. You come and you hug us and you're like, I care, I love you and and all this and then leave us. And then when it happens again and then you come and, and console us when we die, when we're hurt. But in between, where are you? And I think that is really the issue I have is, is it Black Lives Matter or Black Death Matters? Is it George Floyd matters or is it like Brittany King alive matters and you know Tanasi Coates alive matters or is it I only matter until I'm a hashtag that is why I said I am not your hashtag I am not going to be more important when I'm hashtag if I'm hashtag I really feel like that is something that I'm seeing and it, and it could be a the only one <laughs> looking at this movement that way, but I've really been interrogating, is it lives that matter or is it death? And if it's the latter, that's a big issue. Yeah. In regards to your pessimism, I think that it's understandable, but I do think that you actually spoke rather eloquently on this exact problem only, what, half an hour ago when you were talking about Baldwin. And the fact that when Baldwin was writing in the 1950s and 1960s about the problems of Black Americans then, you know, it's, it, and you were saying it, it's, it can be easy to fall into the, into the trap of thinking that, oh, what he's talking about in his essay or in his novel from 70 years ago is what the Black experience is today and, and how that can be a trap you can fall into. I think especially with the age of social media, like time is traveling much more quickly. And so even four years ago, the the pain and frustration you were feeling around a lack of of actual real action beyond just marching, uh, 
I mean, four years later, it seems in many ways, in some ways, like a lifetime has, has passed. And then in the same way that it does us a disservice to look back to 1950 and think that nothing has changed in the same way, I think that 2020 is so much different from 2016. But I do agree with you that we have to get beyond that point where a black life only really matters in death. And I think that that is, I think that really is tied up with our earlier discussion of white Americans need to grapple with black Americans as truly equal as not something to be looked down upon or something to be cried over in death, but something as truly equal as someone and a community and a group of people who are fully and 100% as equally American as they always have been. And that's really, it feels like the next step. I mean, as crazy as that sounds to say, you know? No, it's not crazy. That's exactly, I think a lot of our issues would be easier to grapple with if we were and then, of course, there's people that aren't going to see us as equal. Don't want to, but the ones that want to help need to see us as equal. <laughs> it's funny because, like, I do find myself. Well, I wouldn't say I'm. I fall back into how I was thinking during Black Lives Matter, but I think that the way I I'm talking right now, and maybe to your listeners, they might be confused. Like, I just thought she said this and she's saying that this is this is what i guess it looks like or sounds like when a black person is is trying to make sense of this world they've been in and realizing some things are not as true as it appears but that the 31 years of what i've been told as much as I can chisel away, it's still there. And I'm not trying to chisel all of it away because that's the thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to chisel myself out of blackness. I love being black and I don't want to, you know, negate my race. That's not the point to expand what it means to be black. So that everyone's always in the community that's a goal and for us to really be seen as equal people and as peers to these to our white counterparts is a goal and for us to realize that the hill we're trying to climb that we just feel like is going to take centuries isn't as big as we think isn't the the wall is just not as high as we think and i don't say that in a way to minimize racism i say that in a way to give hope that we've made so much progress and we're almost there i think that is what i'm trying to say like i think this is the fourth leg mhm and I can understand, at least from an outsider's perspective, why that must feel so dangerous to say, because you've cited Coleman Hughes's essay, The Case for Black Optimism, I believe. And yeah, I mean, he got a ton of pushback for that essay. But it's, it's, it's a necessary part of the conversation. Being optimistic about the real progress that America has made, that Black Americans have made, does not mean erasing the distance that still needs to be walked, right? 
but it is it's such a necessary part of the conversation it's it's necessary to, to keep people from becoming cynical it's necessary to keep people from becoming defeatist or hopeless and also again i think it all ties back into teaching americans both white black asian latino indigenous whoever about the very real strides and the battles won by black americans and their white allies and latino and asian and indigenous allies talking about those wins is necessary so you can avoid those awkward videos where white people are talking about black people like their children you have to be able to tell the stories of success in order to paint black americans for what they truly are which is an incredibly strong and resilient group of people exactly it's like basketball like how they have those banners you know hanging from the ceiling like they were the champions this year, this year. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not every year, but a reminder for the people that walk in there that try to challenge them to the game and the people that that's their home court to see where we've come from, what we've won. They don't put up there all their losses. The losses are there, but yeah, it's, to remind, it's to inspire okay. them. What a depressing court that would be. Exactly. I'm just thinking of like a court where they hang all the jerseys of their losses. Holy moly. When you really think of that, if you bring that in as a metaphor and knowledge or whatever for America and America, like that, the home court was American land. And we as Americans are the people in the stands and we look up at what we've accomplished instead of looking up at what's the problem, we all know we lost. Putting those banners up there doesn't negate our, our losses. But when you're trying to win, it's up there for two reasons. One is to remind everyone that, but yeah, it's that it's that moment when, you know, you're down by two. It's like three seconds left. You can look up and be like, okay, maybe I can do this. We, we've come a long ways. We got to put another one up there. It's inspiring. That is what I want more of, us reframing American history. Because when I think of American history, still, I still think more of the negative than the positive. But if I reframe it as, dang, we've been through a lot, but we've gone through, we've overcome a lot. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going. I mean, that's how we should be looking. And we should be looking and cheering and it's so i mean it's so cheesy to say but yeah cheering each other on in the court like we're all on one side and what's trying to get us is on the other side but we can look up and see like okay we've accomplished a lot let's do this and the thing is is you don't always have everyone on the court people come in and out but it's our court and our land and we should try to fight to bring up another win for our generation this year. Yeah, let's hang some more jerseys. Let's hang some more jerseys. <laughs> all right. Before we get to the final question that I ask all of our guests, I just want to interject something a little lighter since this has been a bit of a heavy conversation. And I, I had all this prep work and all these essays of yours that I wanted to reference, but I, I don't mind that I didn't because I really enjoyed this conversation. But I do want to reference one, you had an essay on Medium called TGIF, How Millennials Treated Time in the 90s Versus Quarantine. And as a fellow millennial, 
and child of the 90s. I'm a little older than you, but I mean, I remember Boy Meets World and Step by Step just as well as anyone else. Have you revisited any of those TGI Friday shows or or the after school shows like Family Matters or Sister Sister or um, any of the other shows that you referenced in that essay? And if so, how has it been watching them for the first time in 20 years? Well, one, I just was watching Sister Sister today. The thing is, is I don't, I have never left the 90s. Like I, I wrote that because I was just seeing like, wow, like during the 90s, time was different right now. Time is way different with streaming and everything. But I've always watched Sister Sister, Smart Guy. I live in the 90s. That Everyone knows that about me. It's like this inside joke with me. I still dress like the 90s grunge. Like that's just my personality. But how it feels, I, I love to live in nostalgia. And I'm always nostalgic. And watching these shows just brings back the best memories was the 90s. Like the 90s was the best decade, period. I mean, I'm a little biased, but I tend to agree. Oh, what what do you think is? What is the best decade? Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, I was a, I was a child of the nineties. So I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm biased, but I tend to agree with you not to take us back to a dark place, but I do wonder, you know, obviously there was so much flying under the radar in the nineties and, 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 and there was a lot of horrific stuff that happened. You know, I mean, Rodney King happened during the nineties and OJ happened during the nineties and the LA riots and yada, yada, yada. I mean, not to yada, yada that, but <laughs> there's just a lot of stuff happened, right? But I do wonder in terms of the narratives that we tell ourselves as a nation and, and the narratives that we tell ourselves as communities, if the fact that as kids, what we saw more of on a week-by-week basis were Family Matters, In Living Color, Sister, Sister, Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Man, I love that show. <laughs> and that, I mean, at least for me, again, I can only speak as a, as a white kid growing up in a predominantly white suburb in Northern California, but like, I don't know. I watched those shows every week. And like, that was my, really, that was my window, as fictional as it was, into American black life. And I do feel like it really, I mean, it gave me a warped view. I, I definitely thought things were a lot better off as a whole because, because I was watching kind of a sanitized version of what the overall black experience is like in America. But I also wonder if there's kind of an opposite effect happening. And I don't mean to, to drag us back into a long conversation, but I'm, man, I wonder if like with the age of social media and the fact that Wilfred Riley, who was a previous guest, but he, he made a point of, if, you know, if we watch, and I think Hughes has made this point too, if we see the video of one death, but we see that video a thousand times, it can feel like it's just like everywhere, right? And I do wonder if the the narratives and the stories we tell ourselves by the shows that we watch and the movies that we watch and the narratives that those create can imbue us with a kind of either optimism or pessimism, which can then affect how we view the rest of the world. And I, I can only speak for me as a child of the 90s, but like watching those shows, I think it was honestly very helpful for me in terms of how it framed how I viewed my fellow Americans. And I worry that a generation growing up now in an era that I think unequivocally in terms of just compare 1990 to 2020 is a better world by many metrics, citing Hughes's essay for black Americans than it was 30 years ago. If children growing up today are going to think they're living through some kind of hellscape compared to when you and I grew up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is true. 
You know, it's really weird because I just was, when I was watching Sister Sister today, I was like, you know, there's a lot of things that they did on this show that were in the context of the show, like being like the winners of, you know, winning homecoming queen or winning these things or being the model, whatever. They never made an announcement. Like they're the first black, not to say it's bad to say that, but they're the first this or that. But now it's hard to say this because there was no, I mean, it was real lack of representation of black shows, narratives in the nineties. But I honestly feel like, watching black shows from the 90s now that I'm 31 I have a more of a healthy relationship with those shows than I do watching episodes of even blackish or episodes of really anything now I don't remember there being much of any shows about slavery in the 90s but now there's a lot of shows about slavery, a lot of movies about slavery. And of course, a kid growing up in this generation where not having the space of innocence just to enjoy being a kid, but now growing up and seeing all these shows that constantly tell them you're in danger because of your skin tone. I honestly did not have that when I was young. I didn't have that that fear because I grew up with Smart Guy and the Parkers. And even though these shows were fictional, and sometimes they would talk about real stuff. I remember Smart Guy talking about, or whoever had to follow Black customers around because the woman was like, well, Black people still. like They had ways of talking about it. but now I think the more it's shown, the worse things seems to get, if that makes sense. Like, I know a lot of people like, I want to talk about it because it needs to be talked about and we don't talk about it. I'm like, I don't need another slave movie though. Like I I've made the announcement to myself and whoever, I don't watch slave movies anymore. I don't need to see it. I don't know. Yeah. It's for the same, for the same reason. I mean, because, because TV is, is I think a lot better and has always been, well, at least in the last few decades in terms of telling actual diverse black stories compared to the movies. Right. Because I, I I mean, Oscar's so white was a hashtag that was trending a a few years ago and it's like, I'm all for, you know, let's flood the market with, with black stories. But like, I want to watch movies of black people doing boring shit. I don't need, and I don't think it's healthy. Like, I honestly feel like it's, it's like either driven by guilt or like, like the priest from the Scarlet Letter whipping themselves over and over again. Like (laughs) I, I I have friends here in Los Angeles who are black and they like do normal stuff. Like let's, let's see romances and comedies and let the full thriving experience that people have in American life show that on the screen and it uh, to me I don't, I don't need another precious and i don't know many people who do no one does yeah <laughs> no one needs it but there but let's be honest people can make a lot of money if they produce stuff like that right now and 
that's also an issue I'm seeing. I'm like, people are going to expand this more because they can monetize on this and ridding it will, you know, empty their piggy bank, so to speak. <laughs> right, but, right. It's the whole, it bleeds, it leads incentive, right? I mean, it's like, you know, uh, black family had a great time at Disneyland news at 11. I mean, said no one ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, never, never, that's never happened. But I know what you mean. And it's funny because, man, I'm just going to keep looping Coates in this. I'm sure he's happy. But um, Coates said that, so there's five black women that were accepted into the writing program. And then the, and then half the class was white. So there's five white, five black. And he said that and we read every, and we weren't like, oh, we're going to just read Coates. Like he, we were reading poetry. We we're reading white, black authors. Hispanic, everything. Stuff on race, stuff wasn't on race. But he said, there's one thing though. I think it was when we were, we had a whole bald one day. And he said, there's something about black writing that's always has this urgency. And he said that he brought up one author who wrote about a chair. He said, this author wrote you know, a 5,000 word essay on sitting on a chair and thinking and all this stuff. He's like, black people can't write that. He's like, they can't write that right now. Like he said, like, we don't have that luxury right now to have space to be thinking about sitting on a chair when there's so much happening around our world. So I want to see black people doing normal stuff like where where it's not a black film it's just a film You're right it's just like, a film that has black people in it like that is, is an what, entirely different thing exactly but the sad thing right now that's happening that might affect film is oscars and i don't know if you heard about this but the oscars announced something that's going to be happening in 2022 where if you want to be your film must be nominated for best picture or be eligible. It has to have a certain amount of people of color. I think that they even said like women or whatever. And I'm like, this is really patronizing to people of color and women. The fact that you're like, well, you guys have to let them play too. And you got to meet a quota to be able to be eligible. It's like, what if the film doesn't call for a person of color or a black person or a woman? Now you are infringing upon the creativity of film. I don't want a film if, of a black person just to fit us and squeeze us in the corner at a cafe. I'm like, well, there, there they are. You see, now can I win best? Fit? Like, Why I find that decree or whatever you want to call it problematic is because it doesn't expand our thinking in terms of how we view each other. We have to get to a point and one of my one of my past guests from episode three, Anaya Falaranaman, a Nigerian British activist out of the UK, her whole thing, her whole movement, she has this project called the Equiano Project, and the movement behind it is basically transcending race. And she gets a lot of flack for that, but what she means by it is like, oh, I, I don't want to be. She's not saying I don't want to be black anymore. She's saying what I want us to get to the point where it doesn't matter, and kind of similar to kind of what you were saying, it's like. It's not about rejecting your blackness. It's not about me rejecting my whiteness or whatever, but it is about moving beyond the point where I have to think about some quota system imposed on me from above when I'm thinking about my movie, when what we should be striving towards 
and it's difficult, you know, I mean, I, and I, you know, you touch on this in one of your essays, yeah, our skin problem, America's toxic bias of color, you, you, you talk on this a bit, but we have to get to a point where ideally when you're casting a, a rom-com or a horror film or an action adventure movie, you're not thinking about who to cast in it because you want to make sure you win an Oscar. You're just casting it. You know what I mean? And, and like, and, and in, in so many ways, and I, I've, again, I've spoken on this in previous episodes. It's like, we have achieved this within quote unquote whiteness in that I don't even know the ethnicities of, of some of my white friends who I've known for like two decades. I have no idea. Like, I, I guess I could probably sit down and like read their last names a couple times and figure it out, but I've never yeah. thought about it. Yeah. And so it is possible considering that a hundred years ago, people on the European continent were tearing each other's throats out over their last names. So it is possible. But if, if we keep reifying it over and over and over again, through quota systems intended to help people or the policing of what authentic black thought is, or what I need to do as a white ally to be a true. I mean, it's like, it's, we're all just stuck in this muck, man. Exactly. And that's, and you're still taking away my ability to be seen as equal. Like I'm still at an unequal playing field. If you're seeing me as something to help, like if I rather go out for an audition and not be cast just because I just wasn't a fit than to be cast because they need a black person. Like, well, they're black. Let's let them in. No, I want to be cast because I'm a good actress. And if I don't get it and someone else does, then that is equality. It's equal opportunity. Now, equal outcome. Like there's no, I don't think there's a such thing as like equal outcome for like, no. Thomas Sowell, I think, said, uh, no two people are equal to each other because the same man is not equal to himself on different days, <laughs> which yeah, was, which was yeah. a, a quote that kind of blew my mind. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly I'm certainly not equal to the man I was, <laughs> you know, three days ago. Yeah. I think I was probably better on Thursday, but I try. <laughs> We're not equal in like every area. Like some people are better at certain things than other people. And all because you don't get the thing doesn't mean it was because you're race. It just means you weren't a fit. That's equality. People think equality means I get everything you get. No, equality means that you get a shot. And if you and if it doesn't come out, well, at least you know it didn't come out because maybe you weren't the fit, your resume didn't match, but it had nothing to do with your color. It had everything to just to do what you brought to the table. And that, you did get it it was because you are the fit you are good it has nothing to do with us trying to fit a quota right i mean the difficult work is we have to redefine what the quote-unquote right fit is that's the difficult part the difficult part is 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 wrestling with the is wrestling with colorism the difficult part is wrestling with quote-unquote good hair the difficult part is redefining and exploding the idea of what classical hollywood beauty is right like that's the difficult work but if we can do that difficult work of what a leading man or a leading woman looks like, and if we can do the difficult work of not only, you know, just casting certain people as like the funny sidekick or like the sassy coworker, that's the difficult work we need to do. And if we do that work as a society through conversation and blowing up those categories, then you don't need quotas because you, you, you have expanded your mind beyond that, that two-dimensional thinking. 
and we've seen that happen. I mean, Shonda Rhimes, black woman director, you know, made a show with how to get away with murder. And she cast Viola Davis as the main lead as someone that was cast as the beautiful, sexy woman. Now I view Viola Davis, very beautiful, but even Viola Davis said that I know I was shattering myths of beauty by being cast as this person because normally people assume someone cast as this person that was playing would be curly haired light skinned woman and here I am dark skin taking off my wig with cornrows underneath in a scene it like that was breaking something like Shonda Rhimes did this on purpose she was trying to expand like the beauty standard for blackness is bigger than what has been presented. And I'm going to show you. So stuff like that needs to happen more. And you're right. It's like, what is right? Yes. What is right? We need to grapple with that. But what's not right is what the Oscars did. That is not what we should be striving for. Yeah. Because it's so pessimistic. The quota system imagines a future in which we will never move beyond where we are right now. Whereas Shonda Rhimes and her and people like her have an optimistic vision of the future, which is that, yes, getting someone like Viola Davis cast is going to be a struggle. But all you have to do is open the door for one Viola Davis, one Lupita Nyong'o. And and the list goes on, right? Like you do it one time. You explode what the audience understands as a quote unquote leading lady, you know, or what, uh, or what beauty is. You only have to do it one time. And you see this happen over and over throughout American history. Just takes that one leap. And then all of a sudden people's minds are expanded. And the quota system believes in this incessantly pessimistic future where we're never going to move beyond those things as if we aren't already. I, I just, mm. I, it, it, I, it grosses me out. Yeah. Booker T. Washington talked about this concept of artificial forcing where he doesn't believe in artificial forcing, like quotas or stuff like that, like what the Oscars are doing or things of that nature. One things do happen organically over time. And when they happen organically, they have longevity. But when you force something to happen, you're almost saying, well, it's never going to happen. So we just got to implement it, but it's not going to stick. One, we're not, we might not even be there for it to stick, but it's not real. It's fictional. Like saying like, well, you have to put them in here because we have to make it look like America is this. It's like, but that's not real. It's delusion. It's like some people would say you do got to force things. But for me, I don't know. It's, it's how you force it, right? Like Shonda Rhimes had to use her institutional power and the weight of her experience and her position to force the casting, I imagine, of how to get away with murder. But that's a different kind of force than imposing the kind of quotas we're talking about. Like all the hard-won victories of minority communities, whether they're religious, ethnic, racial, etc., in the United States and worldwide, people have been forcing change but it's entirely different. There's, there's the, the forcing that comes from the ground up that causes change that's organic, that then changes people's minds. I mean, the idea of, of gay marriage as, as something that could be possible 20 years ago, 
would seem foreign to someone in the year 2000 and then it gets forced and now people totally understand and support it for the most part yeah that's what you meant more it wasn't like a you shouldn't force it was more of an imposed like posing posing an idea onto something be like see it's fixed yep i agree well <laughs> i i mean honestly this is i i've, I've really enjoyed this conversation but I, I, I will have to bring us to a close for two reasons. One, I want to respect your time. And I realize I think you're three hours ahead of me. And two, I'm keeping in the back of my mind that I have to edit this thing <laughs> eventually. Yeah. So I want to save myself a little bit of work. But I do want to end this conversation with the question that I ask all of our guests, which is, we are limited as individuals, you know, in all sorts of ways, right? I think we've touched on this a bit in our conversation. We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy, right? Would uh, Brittany of 2016 have empathy for Brittany of 2020, right? But even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person or every other group of people all the time, right? It's impossible. There's only so many hours in the day. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take some time to offer empathy to? I would say the, the black kids who are struggling with their identity, especially the ones that are living in a white community who are constantly told because they're bookish or they love to read, they love to write, they're interested in their studies, that they're white. And because of this, they feel like they have to dim their light or so-called dumb themselves down in order to fit in to what society is saying is black. And I want to tell them that being bookish and being an intellectual is black. And there's nothing wrong with you having this interest and wanting to learn. And I would just want them to be encouraged to know what they're doing is not wrong and society's wrong. And if anything, history within society is pissed off that you're not following suit to being an inferior being and need to push back and just read more and write more. Well, thank you again for your time, Brittany. I've had a great time with this conversation and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.